Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the Loud Girl Talks History podcast where I talk about all things history and basically just gossip about famous dead people. Today we're talking about Henry VIII, the quintessential fuckboy. Henry VIII is an English king who's defined by the women around him, whether it be his infamous six wives or the daughters who would create lasting legacies when they would become queen. But Henry himself also created a huge legacy from his reign, from his ability to spend money like water, his largely unsuccessful military efforts to his break with the Roman Catholic Church. So let's start from the beginning. Henry VIII was born Prince Henry Tudor on the 28th of June 1491. He was the third child, second son of King Henry VII of England and Elizabeth of York. Not much is actually known of Prince Henry's childhood. After all, his elder brother Arthur was heir presumptive to the throne and Henry was the spare and was thus lower down in the sibling hierarchy. So we know a lot about Arthur and his education, but for Henry, we see him given various titles and honours in his youth. For instance, the Constable of Dover Castle, Lieutenant of Ireland, Duke of York, as well as the odd mention of Henry and his household in state papers. Um, But what we do know, though, is that the young Prince Henry carried out multiple royal duties for his father. In November 1501, Henry played an active role in the wedding of his elder brother Arthur and the Spanish princess Catherine of Aragon. He was the one who led the procession where Catherine travelled to St Paul's Cathedral, as well as leading her out of the cathedral after the wedding. However, things changed drastically for Prince Henry when his elder brother died in April 1502. Now Prince Henry was heir to the throne. Not only had Prince Henry inherited his brother's title as heir, he'd also inherited his wife, which in 2020 is just really bizarre and not really the done thing. But back then it was a very good political match. Henry's father, Henry VII, and Catherine's father, Ferdinand II of Aragon, decided that this union between Henry and Catherine would still be a great match politically, and so they signed a treaty for a marriage between the two. At first, King Henry himself put it out there that he could marry Catherine because he was newly widowed, but Catherine's mother was like, absolutely not, that's not happening, and prevented that. But for me, that's just so gross. How are you going to propose a marriage between yourself and your dead son's widow? Anyway, the two kings had to check with the Pope that this proposed marriage between Catherine and Henry was acceptable with the Roman Catholic Church because Catherine had still been married to Henry's older brother, Arthur. Catherine, though, insisted that she was still a virgin, that the marriage with Arthur had not been consummated, and so the Pope gave Catherine and Henry's marriage the all-clear, known as a papal dispensation. At the time, Henry was 12 and Catherine was 17, and two days later, Prince Henry and Catherine were engaged to be married. So, now that Prince Henry was heir to the English throne, surely he needs to get some experience, a royal internship to prepare him for king? Not exactly. Henry was given very few responsibilities when it came to royal affairs. He was shut away, not to be seen in public. And by the time he did succeed his father to the throne in 1509, he didn't really know what it meant to be a ruler. On the 22nd of April 1509, Henry VII died, and the next day, Prince Henry was proclaimed King Henry VIII of England. So now that Prince Henry was King Henry, he had all of this newfound power, freedom, and most importantly, 
money. At the time, there was about a million pounds in the Royal Treasury, and that's over £650 million in 2017 money, which is just insane. So not only was Henry filthy rich, he was incredibly intelligent and handsome. He was around 6'2", very sort of stocky and muscly with auburn gingery hair and Sebastian Justinian a Venetian ambassador to England at the time remarked that nature could not have done more for him he's very fair his whole frame admirably proportioned and Henry himself knew that he was a good-looking guy and he was actually a bit vain about it um when Francis I became king in France in 1515 Henry felt a bit threatened by the 21 year old and wanted a lot of reassurance that he he was still the best looking king in Christendom. He pestered Luigi Pasqualigo, the Venetian ambassador in 1515, about whether Francis was as tall as he was, whether he was as built as he was. And then he pulled out his trump card, i.e. his muscly calves that he was really proud of, and said, look here, I have also a good calf to my leg. Besides his physical appearance, though, Henry showed himself as a really educated, learned king. He was fluent in French and Latin. He played the lute and he could sing. He loved horse riding, wrestling, dancing and tennis. He was good at maths. He was interested in theology. So much so that in 1521, he published a book called The Defence of the Seven Sacraments in response to Martin Luther's writings, which had heavily criticised the Roman Catholic Church. Henry's book was so well received that the Pope himself wrote a letter of thanks to Henry. After his book was published, he was also given the official title of Defender of the Faith by the Pope, partly because of the book, but also because Henry had pestered the Pope for such a long time to get that title. Henry had all of these interests, which he wanted to continue pursuing when he became king, but it was to the point that he prioritised his hobbies over actually learning how to rule his kingdom. Instead, the day-to-day state affairs were handled by Henry's Privy Council, including a certain Cardinal Wolsey, who wielded great political power in England. Wolsey was essentially Henry's right-hand man, and he became so powerful that he was essentially the most powerful man in England behind Henry himself. He would send Henry summaries of the most important news and treaties of the day so that Henry wouldn't have to read the whole thing himself, and he made a lot of crucial, important decisions um, during his time as Henry's right-hand man. One of the first things that Henry did do as king, though, was to settle the matter of his queen, consort. Henry decided to honour the marriage treaty with Catherine of Aragon, which had been signed by both of their fathers, and they were married on the 11th of June, 1509. And it was a good thing that Henry did decide to honour the treaty, because before they married, Catherine was actually treated really poorly by Henry VII. He wouldn't give her any money or clothes, so much so that Catherine couldn't pay her servants and her father wouldn't give her any money either. But when they did marry, both Henry and Catherine were very popular as king and queen. Henry was this extroverted, charismatic figure who the people could really look up to and admire. Meanwhile, Catherine was known for being very kind, submissive and gentle. In many ways, she was the Tudor ideal of what a woman should be. Henry and Catherine's marriage was also a success, at least at first. They clearly loved each other, although I would say Catherine was probably more in love than Henry was. 
Henry loved Catherine, but I wouldn't say that he was ever in love with her. Still, Catherine would always accompany Henry on state occasions or when foreign dignitaries paid visits to courts. Henry and his friends would put on disguises and surprise the Queen and her ladies, dancing and performing for them. And these disguise and surprise performances went on for years. And Catherine, being the very dutiful wife, would act shocked every time. Catherine would also wield a certain degree of political influence over Henry in the early years of their marriage. Being the daughter of a Spanish king, she'd inevitably give pro-Spanish advice to Henry. This was convenient because Henry was strongly anti-French and was ambitious to gain more territory in France through war. This opportunity arose in 1511 when Henry entered into a European alliance with Pope Julius II, Ferdinand of Spain and Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian and that alliance was called the Holy League which was aimed to protect Italy from French power. In November 1511, Henry and Ferdinand signed a Treaty of Westminster, which provided that England and Spain would help each other against France. The next year, in 1512, an English army was sent to France to meet with Spanish troops with the shared mission of seizing French territory. But there was internal struggles. The English and Spanish disagreed on where to strike first. Ferdinand wanted the army to capture Navarre first, while England wanted the Anglo-Spanish army to seize Bayonne. In the end, Ferdinand's army successfully captured Navarre by themselves, and now that he had what he wanted, Ferdinand effectively abandoned the English army who had been waiting for the Spanish army to return. To add insult to injury, Ferdinand went behind Henry's back and came to terms with France, which must have been a real kick in the teeth. Um, But the next year proved more successful for Henry's army. In 1513, Henry himself landed in Calais, which was under English rule at the time, to resume the war against France. Once he was there, he captured two French towns, Terouan and Tournai, um, with the help of the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian. In the end, Henry gave Terouanne to Emperor Max and Tournay from then on was under English control. As it was approaching winter, Henry had to return to England with his troops because being in war in winter just is not a good idea. Um, But he agreed with his allies that they would stage an invasion of France before June 1514. That would never happen though. What actually happened in 1514 was peace. By August, every participant of the Holy League alliance had made peace with France, so much so that England and France agreed on a marriage between Henry's sister Mary and the King of France, Louis XII. At the time, Mary was 18 and Louis was 52, which was hardly the most ideal marriage proposal for Mary. But while Henry and his army were busy fighting France, England was also under threat from Scottish invasion. Before Henry left for Calais, he made Catherine, his wife, governor of the realm and captain general of the forces in his place. And in August 1513, King James IV of Scotland invaded England. An English army met Scottish forces and engaged in what became known as the Battle of Flodden, where the Earl of Surrey led the English army to victory, and as a result, around 10,000 Scottish soldiers were dead, including the Scottish King James himself, which was a massive win for the English. In Henry's absence, Catherine had shown herself to be a capable ruler, able to lead England in the face of crisis, just as she had shown in Scotland. But... 
Catherine had still not fulfilled her primary duty as wife and queen by giving Henry a male heir. Catherine had suffered several miscarriages, stillbirths, and infants who died a couple of weeks after Catherine had given birth. But on New Year's Day, 1511, Catherine gave birth to a baby boy named Henry, and the whole kingdom was ecstatic. And celebrations lasted for over a month to commemorate the new Prince Henry's birth. And there was a story where one day the palace doors were open to the general public to um, see all the celebrations taking place. But things quickly got out of hand when they started just wrecking the place. Henry came out himself and just let them strip him down to his hose and doublet and his courtiers had to just copy him. And one courtier, Sir Thomas Nivet, was stripped butt naked and just had to climb a pillar to escape the public but when they started targeting the ladies henry was like enough is enough and put everything to a stop unfortunately the young prince henry died a couple of weeks after his birth and given the high mortality rate with babies in tudor times it it was very common but henry and catherine were confident that they were still young and they could have many opportunities to have a baby boy but years went by and Catherine suffered more miscarriages after that point until 1516 when she gave birth to a baby girl Princess Mary the only one of Henry and Catherine's children to reach adulthood by that time and for many years Catherine wasn't the only one who enjoyed Henry's affections Henry would have numerous affairs with women at court and Catherine learned very quickly that she would just have to turn a blind eye to them just like her mother Isabella of Castile did. But in 1519, Henry's mistress Elizabeth Blount gave birth to a baby boy named Henry Fitzroy and Fitzroy literally means son of the king. He was acknowledged as Henry's son and was made Duke of Richmond and often visited court which must have hurt and embarrassed Catherine a lot who hadn't been able to give Henry a baby boy who survived childhood. 1519 was not only an important year for Henry in terms of his bastard son's birth, but also politically. A meeting between Henry and the French king Francis I was in the works to really cement the peace between England and France. Initially, it was agreed that the kings would meet in the summer of 1519, but it had to be postponed to the following year. To signify that they were really serious about the meeting, both Henry and Francis promised not to shave until they met. Catherine, though, hated Henry with a beard and forced him to shave. On the 7th of June, 1520, Henry and Francis finally met at the Vale of Ard. It was a very dramatic scene where they were both at opposite ends of the field and they rode out to meet each other where they hugged and chatted when they met in the middle. And this meeting would be known as the Field of Cloth of Gold. And as the name suggests, it was a very grand affair. Both the English and French would dine together, they jousted, danced and wrestled for more than two weeks. Henry and Francis themselves wrestled each other and that ended very quickly when Francis threw Henry, which was just so stupid. It could have ended with war breaking out again right there and then when they were supposed to be securing peace between the two countries. But to be fair, England and France did go back to war with each other, but not because of a wrestling match. In May 1522, England declared war on France, backed by the new Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and the Duke of Bourbon. 
The following year, an English army was sent to originally capture Bologna, but three weeks later, this plan was discarded. The new plan was for everyone to attack Paris, but from three different sides. This proved to be another military failure. Charles V and the Duke of Bourbon's armies failed to fulfil their side of the plan, leaving the English army forced to return to Flanders when they were around 50 miles away from Paris. They were very close. Success against France finally emerged for England, though, in February 1525, when the French army suffered heavy losses in the Battle of Pavia, a city in Italy, and the French king, Francis, was taken prisoner. Now that Francis didn't have an army it didn't have any money, and it didn't have a king, Henry wanted to use such a precious opportunity to split France up and divide it between the victors. Charles, though, who was holding France as captive and basically could make the decisions, wasn't prepared to give Henry any of what he wanted. Charles, who was also engaged to Henry's daughter, the Princess Mary, also declared that he believed his betrothal null and void because he hadn't received Princess Mary and he hadn't received his dowry even after he'd repeatedly asked Henry. With Anglo-Imperial relations rapidly deteriorating, a treaty was designed and pushed mainly by Cardinal Wolsey between England and France, and a treaty was signed called the Treaty of the Moor to end the war between England and France on the 30th of August 1525. Also in 1525, Henry had started pursuing another potential mistress by the name of Anne Boleyn. Anne had only recently returned to court as she'd been sent away after getting engaged to Henry Percy, the son of the Earl of Northumberland, who was already engaged to another woman. After hearing about this, Cardinal Wolsey was the one who prevented Anne and Henry Percy's betrothal, which kick-started a lifelong grudge that Anne held against Wolsey. And from then on, Anne marked Wolsey down as her political enemy and would seek to bring about the downfall of the cardinal. But when Anne returned to court after her exile, she soon caught the attention of the King Henry. Anne wasn't actually considered particularly pretty at the time. She was quite thin when a fuller figure was more fashionable at the time. She had small moles on her body and had an extra nail on the side of one of her fingers. It's a massive and common misconception that Anne had a sixth finger, but it's not true. It was just an extra nail. But what made Anne attractive was her personality. It was her charm and her wit and her sociableness. And Anne also shared Henry's interest in singing, dancing, gambling and hunting. She was quite extroverted like Henry. Catherine had grown used to her husband's affairs by now and largely turned the other way while they happened. For Catherine, she must have thought that Anne was just another mistress that Henry picked up and would grow tired of quickly once he had her. But Anne was very different. She refused to become Henry's mistress, saying that I'd rather lose my life than my honesty, which will be the greatest and best part of the dowry I shall have to bring my husband. Which, I mean, sure, she might have thought that her virginity was her most prized possession, which it kind of was, but it was used as a weapon to just make Henry all the more enamoured with her. And it worked. Rather than being put off, Henry was just all the more obsessed with Anne and he was just determined to have her. The courtship turned really serious all of a sudden when in around late 1526 to early 1527, Henry proposed to Anne, even though he was still married to Catherine. 
But it wasn't until late spring 1527 that Anne accepted the marriage proposal. She left Henry hanging for quite some time. Um, But a couple of months later, Henry went to Cardinal Wolsey to bring about a divorce between him and Catherine. But Anne wasn't the only reason for divorce. Catherine had failed to give Henry a male heir. Now that she was 40, she was considered past childbearing age, and Henry was just desperate to have a baby boy, to have a male heir, to continue the Tudor dynasty. Henry's case for divorce against Catherine was based on two arguments. One, the book of Leviticus in the Bible, which prohibited a man from marrying his brother's widow, and two, This was divine law and the marriage couldn't be superseded by a papal dispensation like the one that the Pope gave to Catherine and Henry and therefore that papal dispensation was invalid. Catherine herself was humiliated and heartbroken when she found out and I would be too. I mean she had devoted her youth, the prime years of her life, she suffered miscarriages for Henry and all the thanks that she gets is oh, I want a divorce. She insisted that she was a virgin when she became Henry's wife and that her marriage remained valid by law. When news broke out, this sparked a huge international debate on the subject of Henry's intention to divorce Catherine. Holy Roman Emperor Charles, who was Catherine's nephew, spoke out against the divorce, writing to both Henry and Pope Clement in opposition to it. And when Pope Clement heard of what Henry intended to do, he allowed Cardinals Wolsey and Campeggio to try the case, but refused to grant them a decretal commission. In other words, if the Cardinals found the marriage invalid, that wouldn't mean that the Pope allowed for the divorce. The final decision would be in the hands of the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. And the quest for divorce also made Anne deeply unpopular. The public viewed Anne as a whore, an adulteress, and a heretic. Essentially, everyone was blaming Anne for leading Henry astray. In my opinion, it takes two to tango. But I mean, just blaming the women wouldn't happen today, would it? Anyway, Catherine had always been a popular queen with the people, and the public resoundingly gave their support to her. However, Henry and Anne's relationship went from strength to strength. Anne was always with Henry. She ate with him, prayed with him, hunted and danced with him. Henry would send Anne romantic letters, desperately missing her when they were apart. Henry's love for Anne didn't extend to illness though. The sweating sickness broke out in London in 1528 and Anne herself was taken to bed with the sweating sickness. What did Henry do? He ran a mile. He would still write heartfelt letters to Anne professing how much he missed her, but also told her to not come back to him too soon, just in case Anne exposed Henry to anything. Henry was socially distancing before it was even a thing. Lucky for them though, Anne did recover and was soon well enough to return to Henry's side. Everything was alright again. But in the latter half of 1528, Henry took matters into his own hands and tried using Cardinals Wolsey and Campeggio as messengers to persuade Catherine to voluntarily renounce the marriage and enter into a nunnery. Henry later resorted to threats, saying that if Catherine wouldn't do as he asked by choice, he would force her to. But Catherine wouldn't play ball. Catherine refused to give in to Henry's threats. Instead, she appealed to Rome against the authority of the court that had been set up and would be heard by Wolsey. In my opinion, good honour, Catherine didn't give in to Henry's attempts at coercion. She stuck to her beliefs and she used the system against Henry by appealing to Rome. 
But she also had her daughter to think about. If she gave in to Henry and said, okay, the marriage is invalid, that would have made her daughter marry a bastard. So no matter how cruel Henry could treat Catherine, and he did, Catherine, for the sake of her daughter Mary, could not and would not acknowledge that their marriage was invalid. The matter of divorce dragged on for years, by which time people started to suffer from Henry's impatience. Most importantly, Cardinal Wolsey, Henry's right-hand man for years. He was stripped of his office as Lord Chancellor and no longer had a place at court after Anne was whispering into Henry's ear and poisoning him against Cardinal Wolsey. Um, Remember that grudge she held against him for preventing her marriage? But in November 1530, Wolsey was arrested for treason and ordered to go to London to face trial. But on the way to London, Wolsey died after suffering from ill health. Anne, who had hated Wolsey after his interference in her relationship with Henry Percy, celebrated Wolsey's death with a mask, a 16th century form of entertainment called the going to hell of Cardinal Wolsey, which that's gross to me. That's so tasteless somebody's died and you're celebrating his death um but for Anne this was a huge victory over her political enemy Anne's own status was soaring in September 1532 Henry gave Anne the title of Marquess of Pembroke and a thousand pounds a year for her estate it's around this time that Anne decided to forego her previous insistence that she would remain a virgin until marriage and entered into a sexual relationship with Henry. So all of those words about her virginity being the most prized possession to her husband was clearly to make Henry more in love with her. But Anne's importance to Henry was also shown by her attendance at the meeting between Henry and Francis in October 1532. There was a lot of drama in the lead up to that meeting though. Francis's wife, Queen Eleanor, and his sister, the Queen of Navarre, refused to receive Anne. And at the time, it was customary for a queen to receive a queen. Francis tried to come up with a compromise and he proposed that his mistress on Titre, the Duchess of Vendôme, receive her instead, which infuriated Henry because that was just like saying that a mistress was being received by a mistress. This was incredibly telling of the international perspective towards Anne. Henry saw it as an affront against Anne to not be received by a queen. But nobody within the international stage really saw Anne as someone who was a rightful queen. In the end, it was decided that Anne would remain in Calais while Henry went into French territory to meet Francis and discuss the divorce case with him to see whether Francis could help in any way and speak to the Pope. A few days later, Henry returned to Calais with Francis where Anne was. Also, to further show Henry's intent for Anne as his queen, Anne asked Henry to get the Queen's jewels to wear to France because it was such a massive occasion. They weren't technically Queen Catherine's personal property, but the jewels were the property of the Queens of England. And so Henry sent a messenger to Catherine and she had to give them up. I mean, talk about kicking someone when they're down. But as 1533 rang in, Anne found out that she was pregnant. Now, it was important that any child that Anne would have by Henry was legitimate. So on the 25th of January, Henry and Anne secretly got married. Basically, Henry had just committed 
bigamy. But things started happening really quickly. In May 1533, Archbishop Cranmer declared Henry and Catherine's marriage to be null and void. Henry had finally got what he wanted, the annulment of his marriage to Catherine. Essentially, Henry and Catherine's marriage was invalid and that their whole union together was incestuous because Henry and Catherine were siblings and Henry was so happy that he was now free to marry his true love Anne. No man on this earth was happier than Henry to admit that he had committed incest and he could now go about making Anne his queen. Meanwhile, Catherine had been sent away from court and out of London. After Cranmer's decision, Catherine was stripped of her title of Queen in England, and from here on out, she would have the title of Princess Dowager. On the 1st of June, 1533, Anne was anointed and crowned Queen of England. Now, when Rome heard what was happening, Pope Clement quickly denounced Henry's annulment to Catherine and his marriage to Anne. He then gave Henry until September to take back Catherine or he would be excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. However, Henry refused to obey. He was waiting for his son to be born. On the 7th of September, 1533, Anne gave birth. Doctors and astrologers, except for one, said that Henry and Anne's child would surely be a boy. So, when Anne delivered a healthy baby girl by the name of Elizabeth, Henry was so disappointed. Anne was still of childbearing age though, and there were hopes of Anne giving Henry a son in the future. By that point, Anne's position as queen was relatively safe. Her personal relationship with Henry though, far from it. Their relationship was tempestuous for years and years they would fight and make up fight and make up fight and make up and when Anne was in her later stages of pregnancy she found out that Henry had had an affair nothing of particular consequence but unlike Catherine Anne was not going to tolerate it she was very used to Henry being at her beck and call and exclusively being hers Anne flew into a massive rage she had a massive temper just like Henry and she confronted him immediately. Meanwhile Henry was extremely annoyed at Anne acting out at his infidelity. Now that they were man and wife Henry expected Anne to be a submissive compliant wife even if Henry misbehaved. In the over 20 years that Henry was married to Catherine she had never acted that way. Henry was also extra hurt, I can't believe I'm saying this, because he had just given her a really expensive French bed as a present. Never mind he cheated. What about the expensive bed that Anna just got from him? I mean, the logic. Even so, Henry persisted in distancing England from the Roman Catholic Church. Day to day, there was still mass and the more outward forms of religious worship that the English people had known for a long time. However, in 1534, Parliament passed the Act of Supremacy, which declared Henry as head of the English Church. These were the first real signs of Henry's intention to really separate himself from the power of the Catholic Church. The clergy had to acknowledge royal supremacy and deny papal jurisdiction. Religious images and shrines were removed. The influence and wealth of the clergy and the Roman Catholic Church were put to an end by Henry um, and redirected to himself and his own church that he was now head of. 
In March 1534, the Act of Succession was also passed, which named Anne's daughter Elizabeth as Henry's successor until Anne gave him her male heir. At the same time, Catherine's daughter Mary was officially a bastard. Meanwhile, Catherine and Mary refused to acknowledge that they were anything less than Queen and Princess, respectively, to the King of England. As a result, Henry treated them incredibly poorly. Catherine had a household that had a tiny fraction of the attendance that she'd been used to as queen. When she died in January 1536, basically in exile, Mary was forbidden from attending the funeral. Catherine and Mary were, when Catherine was alive, forbidden to see each other. Even when Mary was really ill and Catherine begged Henry to let her nurse her daughter back to health. In the end, Mary was so beaten down by Henry that she signed a document of acknowledgement that Henry and Catherine's marriage had been incestuous and unlawful and that she was essentially a bastard. She signed it with her eyes closed, she didn't read it and then asked the Imperial Ambassador Chapuis to obtain a papal absolution for her actions because in her heart she just knew that she was the true princess and not Elizabeth. But at the same time, what was she supposed to do? She was being treated really badly by Henry and it was going to be an easier life for her if she did what Henry asked her to and demanded of her. But let's turn back to Anne and Henry. Within a few years of their marriage, Anne and Henry's relationship was falling apart. Anne had made many political enemies and turned allies against her because of her diva behaviour. For me, she was like Icarus flying too close to the sun. She was getting too big for her boots. She had a really bad attitude. She was really quick to anger and she'd shown a real vindictive mean girl side to her, like with Cardinal Wolsey and when she put on entertainment saying that he was going to go to hell. Um, But at the same time, Anne was a queen who could really exhibit sympathy and charity she sponsored scholars for their education she'd give money to widows and the poor when she was expected to visit a certain place she would have a list drawn up of needy families so that she could financially help them out so history remembers Anne Boleyn for being a very cunning and politically ruthless woman which she definitely was but I think we also need to see Anne Boleyn as a lot more than that Anne's greatest failure, though, in Henry's eyes, was her inability to give him a male heir, the same problem that her predecessor had. Karma works in very funny ways. Anne had had subsequent pregnancies after Elizabeth, but they all ended in either miscarriage or stillbirth. Henry had discarded his first wife, Catherine, at least partly because she didn't give him a male heir. He could and would also do the exact same to Anne. On the 2nd of May 1536, Anne was summoned to appear in front of the Privy Council, where she was charged with committing adultery. And a poem by Lancelot de Carle, who had access to the court at the time, tells us what happened in the events leading up to Anne's arrest. This poem by de Carle details how the Countess of Worcester, a lady in Anne's court, had been told off by her brother for her reputation as a quote-unquote loose living i.e promiscuous women the countess then tried to defend herself saying words to the effect that she wasn't the worst woman at court when it came to promiscuity and she certainly wasn't as bad as the queen this fight between two siblings formed the basis of a case against queen anne for adultery with five men and conspiracy to murder the king which constituted high treason this included adultery and incest with Anne's own brother, the Viscount Rochford. 
many historians have concluded that the charges against Anne are most likely false. Anne wasn't an idiot. She knew that all eyes were on her at court and any slip-up could really endanger her tenuous position, particularly because she hadn't given Henry a son yet. Yet, Anne was flirtatious. She'd give her favourite courtiers gifts and flirt with them. There was a moment when she would flirt with Henry Norris and say, oh, I'll marry you when King Henry VIII died, which she definitely shouldn't have said, but that doesn't form the basis of adultery or treason. They're just words, but at court, words mean everything. Anne had worked so hard waited so long to be queen that personally I don't believe she would risk her position as queen of England to commit adultery. There's an argument that Anne was so desperate for a baby boy that she was willing to commit adultery to give Henry a son but considering that Anne had gotten pregnant by Henry relatively easily even though they had ended in miscarriage or stillbirth the idea that she committed adultery because she wanted a son doesn't seem particularly probable either. No matter what the truth is of whether Anne had committed adultery or not, Anne was arrested for charges of adultery and high treason against her. She was sent to the Tower of London where she was understandably hysterical. She was sobbing, crying for help, begging God and Henry for mercy. And on the 15th of May, Anne was put on trial, where she was found guilty by every single one of the 26 peers who gave judgment. Only one person out of the five that were accused confessed to having committed adultery with Anne, Mark Smeaton. And he was a court musician who might well have been put under torture. All other four people accused of committing adultery protested their innocence until they were executed and, in my humble opinion, falsely found guilty. Four days later, Anne was beheaded by a Hesman who had been imported from Calais at Tower Green. Now Henry was free to marry his third wife, Jane Seymour. Now, Jane Seymour had served in both Catherine and Anne's households. She was known to be sympathetic to Catherine and Mary, and Jane also had a personality that was in stark contrast to her predecessor, Anne. She was everything Anne wasn't. She was very meek, unassuming, obedient. I'm not going to lie, she sounds boring, particularly compared with Anne, who was just full of life and so sociable and witty. And this is only in my opinion, but Jane must have been such a breath of fresh air. Finally, a woman comes along who's exactly what she should be, quiet, knows her place, doesn't question the man in the relationship. Yeah, particularly compared to Anne, who was just known for her anger and disobedience essentially against Henry and Catherine who would not play ball with Henry and did not pander to his demands even when he started to become threatening. By the time that he was courting Jane, Henry, the handsome, intelligent, muscly Henry, was aging, balding and getting obese. In 1536, when he was still married to Anne, Henry had participated in a joust and was thrown from his horse and knocked unconscious for two hours. And from that instant, an old wound in his leg reopened. That formed an abscess, which caused lifelong implications for his health. 
Henry's charming and charismatic personality was overshadowed in his later years by his foul temper. He had a tendency to let his temper get the better of him. He had really bad mood swings, which some historians have attributed to him being knocked unconscious from that joust. Just as Henry had done with Anne Boleyn, Jane and her family enjoyed an elevated status in court. Jane was installed in rooms that were secretly connected to Henry's apartments and she was given expensive clothes and jewellery. When Anne was first arrested, Henry arranged for Jane to stay at Surrey, which allowed him to visit her whenever he wanted. It was always with Jane's parents and brother present so that no one could say that Jane's reputation wasn't intact. As soon as Henry heard the guns go off and Anne was dead, he rushed over to see Jane. Just a day after Anne had been executed, Henry and Jane were engaged, which I find absolutely repulsive. Anne's body was still warm when they had got engaged. I just think it's so cruel and... I mean, they couldn't have given it some time. Anyway, on the 30th of May, Henry and Jane were married. And on the 4th of June, Jane was proclaimed Queen of England. Jane's rise to success had come very quickly. This was also when Parliament passed a second act of succession, where, following the annulment of Henry and Anne's marriage, Elizabeth joined Lady Mary as the king's bastard and was expelled from the line of succession. With no clear heir to the English throne, the onus was now on Jane to provide Henry with a male heir. As queen, Jane modelled her household on Catherine's, emphasising religious piety and modesty. She's actually quite strict about it as well, and she'd make sure that her lady's clothing were in a way that she found acceptable. Meanwhile, Henry continued the English Reformation and made efforts to continually disempower the Roman Catholic Church's influence in England. Trouble started brewing, though, in around October 1536, when rebellion started appearing in the north of England, mainly in response to the English Reformation. A series of rebellions occurred. First it was Lincolnshire, then it was Yorkshire. Nearby counties started rebelling in the northwest as well. At first, there was peace when the rebels agreed to stop the uprising for a promise of pardon from the king. However, when Yorkshire saw a second uprising, Henry proved a lot less forgiving and most leaders were arrested and executed. Jane tried to interfere in the rebellion. She kneeled in front of him and begged him to reconsider the destruction of the monasteries and she was even brave enough to say that this rebellion was potentially a punishment from God. Henry raged at Jane, telling her to get up and deal with other things. He also reminded Jane that the last queen had died because she had interfered too much in state affairs. And after that episode, Jane never spoke up about politics again. In 1537, though, Jane found out that she was pregnant and went into labour on the 9th of October 1537. She was in labour for three days before a baby boy, Edward, was born. Finally, Henry had gotten the male heir that he had wanted for nearly 30 years. However, there was a high infant mortality rate at the time and Henry, being a huge germaphobe, ordered that Edward's apartments were washed with soap and swept from top to bottom every single day. Soon after Jane had given birth to Edward, she started falling ill, and a lot of historians believe that it could have been 
puerperal fever. Her condition began fluctuating. One minute she was feverish and seriously ill, the next she was a lot better. But at 8pm on the 23rd of October, Henry was summoned to see Jane. Her condition was deteriorating and quickly. Henry went to Jane and stayed with her all night. The Bishop of Carlisle was summoned to administer the last rites and Jane died with Henry by her side on the 24th of October 1537. This is probably one of the few occasions when Henry did what he should have done as a husband supported one of his wives. Jane, having given Henry what others couldn't do, i.e. a male heir, was the only one of Henry's wives to be given a queen's funeral with some of the queen's jewels as well. Henry himself was heartbroken and from then on he would really see Jane as his quote-unquote true wife. But for me personally, I'm side-eyeing that a little bit just because I have a sneaking feeling that it was a case of you either die a hero or live long enough to be a villain. And luckily or unluckily for Jane, she died at childbirth. Who knows what would have happened if she had survived. Either way, after Jane's death, Henry fled to Windsor and refused to see anyone. A couple of days later though, Henry's minister's suggested to Henry that it might be a good idea to start looking for a new wife and then Henry was like okay that might be a good idea and so the search for Henry's fourth wife began and that concludes the first part of Henry VIII the quintessential fuckboy the second part will be uploaded in around a week or so but in the meantime if you enjoyed the episode give it a like, subscribe, leave a review as well and I'll see you on the next one.